You're listening to the Farbringen with Rabbi Levi Avtsan on 101.9 High FM. 101.9 High FM. My name is Rabbi Levi Avtsan, Associate Rabbi Linksfield Chul here on Soul to Soul, the Farbringen show every Tuesday from 1 to 2 in the afternoon. It's an honor and a privilege to be here, and hopefully we can Farbring and this Farbringen show for the next hour together. Love to hear your thoughts on 34519 is our SMS line. Email on air at chayfm.com or tweet at chayfm. Our WhatsApp number is 062 148 2374. That's 062 148 So today is quite a day in the Jewish calendar. Earlier today, I was here on the show, um, Sue Jackson's show, Finding Human. And um, it was mentioned. I just want to dedicate the show today to the yard site of uh, my mentor and one of the most influential Jews in history, Lubavitcher Rebbe, who literally transformed the modern landscape of the Jewish world and in many ways the world at large. And uh, it's on a day like this that we're told that a person reflects on the people who, whose day this is their special day, and today is the day dedicated to the Rebbe. And for me personally, it's a day that I'm trying to process and learn something from him. And I want to share a few stories about uh, about him that I've recently heard. And hopefully we can forbring about it today and, and discuss it and find some relevance and some lessons. And the theme I want to address today and the theme that I want to forbring about is seeing human beings as human beings. I don't know if you've heard that famous expression. I can't recall who was attributed to that. There was a certain idea that came up and somebody suggested that idea. And the response to the idea was only an academic could come up with such a ridiculous idea. And the point of this little anecdote is that often academics, people that sit and study books or study um, mice in a lab, very brilliant people. But often they, they lose the human aspect of the idea. And they forget that we're not dealing with robots and mice. We're dealing with human beings and the complexities of the human being. And therefore their idea, which sounds so utopian in theory, fails in real life. And one of the prime examples is socialism or communism. Pretty much most campuses in the Western world today when it comes to politics, are very much on the left of politics, not on the right. Um, and I'm not here to say who's right, the right or the left, but the, there's no question that socialism and communism as an experiment in the past hundred years have not been a smashing, smashing success. Rather, they've been a colossal failure, and it's something we've spoken about quite often on the show. Uh, hundreds of millions of people dead due to communism and numerous failed states um, due to socialism. This is not to say that capitalism is pure genius, but there's no question that um, socialism and communism are much worse of an evil than the evil of of capitalism. And yet, in campuses around the world, very clever people will still argue with you about the, the beauty of Marx's idea and the beauty of socialist ideas and how it sounds so utopian. And the truth is, if I was a student in university right now listening to a lecture, um, socialism and communism would be very attractive to me, a lot of the ideas, and it just makes so much sense, and it's so utopian. How did that statement go in the early 1900s? He, 
who is not a communist at the age of 20 has no heart, and he who is still a communist at the age of 30 has no brain. So often ideas come up in a laboratory. They come up in a theory. And when it comes to practice, nobody, it doesn't resonate. It doesn't work on anybody. Another prime example, just to build this thought for a moment, is the elections that have happened in the past few years across the Western world, um, whether it was Brexit and the Trump phenomena. And there's a million ways to dissect it, but one of the ways that's been dissected and many people have seen it is how maybe the – what do they call – the elites or whatever you want to call them, the academics or the, the people with a serious education, um, tended to believe that they're directing the countries in a certain way and that the way they see the world is the way everybody else sees the world by default. And they made decisions based on their knowledge or perception uh, and bias only to discover that a majority of their country or at least a strong number of their country has totally not bought into what they're doing. Uh, those ideas did not play out in the real world at the way it played out in theory, and the people rebelled. So when it comes to Brexit and the Trump phenomenon, when it, when it's talking about internationalism and universalism and opening up borders, etc., and I'm not here to say which one's right or is wrong, but there's no question that the people that came up with these ideas didn't think about how it's going to impact Joe Schmo in a small-town America or in a small-town Britain. And because they didn't think it through and they didn't humanize that idealistic concept – it rebelled against them, big time. And the world is still waking up to all the changes that have happened to us in the past few years due to the fact that ideas which sounded so idealistic did not play out in, in reality. It takes a very special mind. It takes a very special person who doesn't only see ideas as an academic pursuit but sees the way – ideas have to marry humanity. They have to resonate with people. They have to be ideas that impact people and they have to be transformed and shared in a way that people relate to and connect to. To understand the complexity of the human condition. We often, you know, talk theory. People love talking theory. In school, so much of what we learn is theory. But there are not that many people who know how to take an idea which is theory and practicalize it and make it relevant and make it relatable to a person in their life. The Rebbe, Lubavitch Rebbe, was such a person who had a tremendous sensitivity to the complexity of the human being and an understanding that theory and practical have to somehow have a relationship. Otherwise, you can have people who know all the right ideas, but practically they're not changing their life accordingly. I mean, and in a way, we're all guilty of it. How many of us, if we were asked to lecture about ethics, okay, once we overcome some of us overcome our fear of speaking. Um, how many of us would struggle to give a lecture on ethics? Most of us can give a very passionate hour speech about why ethics is important. Some of us might be more interesting or less interesting. Uh, more stories, less stories, more insightful, less insightful, but we could all be passionate about ethics. And yet, so many of us fail in that regard. So many of us can give an hour lecture about how to have a good marriage. 
in reality, the same person who gave a great lecture on marriage could have just come out of a fight with the wife or might as well or very well could have just exited the divorce and the fourth divorce. And we've all met those people and somehow ideas which are so beautiful don't pre- don't realize themselves in reality because the real challenge of a thinker and of somebody who's pursuing truth is to not only find the truth of the textbook but the truth of the life book the truth of the of life to be able to find ideas and to tr- to share them in a way that people can digest it internalize it in their life ideas are like fruit If you eat a fruit which isn't ripened, even if it looks delicious and it's um, and it smells delicious, you're going to get a tummy ache, or definitely won't add any healthy calories and healthy uh, nutrients to your body. However, if you ripen the fruit, in other words, you allow it to fully come into its own, then the fruit hopefully will add nutrients and be healthy for the human being. And the same thing is with an idea, an idea that hasn't ripened, an idea that has not gone from a theory into a human idea will stay totally theoretical and will not impact. And on the contrary, it could often corrupt people. That's why you have you know, very often people screaming ideas that sound right, but because they haven't been actualized and brought into practice, um, are terribly dangerous because they haven't yet been brought into practice. I I see there's a comment over here that says, why is communism, socialism beautiful in theory? It's disgusting in theory. Stealing others' possession is disgusting. Anonymous. Um, Not that this is a show on communism, socialism, but I will respond to the comment and say that the idea that we all have to share and we're all equal and there's no hierarchy it resonates with a lot of people. I mean, it was in the parsha of last week. Korach comes and says to Moshe, Korach was Moses' first cousin, Moshe's first cousin, and he screams and says, The entire community is holy. Why do you have to be greater and higher and more uplifted than everybody else? That idea of equality and the idea of taking from the rich and giving to the poor because nobody deserves more than others sounds... To some people, it resonates deeply. It's, it, it resonates with the unfairness of the world. And yet, in reality, it doesn't work because the human being is not a theory. The human being is not a lab mice. Um, and we're going to open it up more during the show in the next uh, few minutes as we bring together here on the Fabringen Show. But here's a thought I would like to hear your your comments on if you'd... If you have a moment to text here on 34519 or email on here at is what do you think is the idea of the, the genius and, the, and what's the recipe to be able to take ideas out of theory and into practice? What is the missing link in so many people who can give the greatest philosophies, but in their own life, they cannot actualize it? Stories told about the, the Greek philosopher Aristotle, who was once caught doing something against his own morality, something he preached against. And his students turned to him and they say, Aristotle, you? And he turns to them and says, when I walk out of the lecture hall and I walk into my own tent, I'm not Aristotle. How do we make sure that there's no moment in our life that we walk away from the ideas we wholeheartedly believe in? And how do we make sure that the ideas we teach are not only theory, but are actualized and brought into practice? Here on 101.9 High FM. And this song, a beautiful uh, Hasidic melody, a Masai Kasimar, is a, based on the words 
that the, the Jewish tradition, Hasidic tradition has that the founder of the movement, the Baal Shem Tov, had an, an out-of-body experience. His soul was uplifted and he met the Mashiach, the Redeemer, and he asked him, when are you going to come? When are you going to finally redeem the Jewish people and the entire world? And the Mashiach responded and said, When your wellsprings of mysticism and Torah goes out to everybody else and spreads out to the world, that's when it's going to come. Here, a Masai Kasimar on 101.9 Chai FM. You're listening to the Farbringen with Rabbi Levi Avtsan on 101.9 High FM. 101.9 High FM. My name is Rabbi Levi Avtsan, Associate Rabbi Linksfield Shul here on Soul to Soul. We're Farbringen today in honor of the Yartzeit of the Labarach Rebbe. You can SMS at 34519, email on air at chayfm.com, or tweet at chayfm. The WhatsApp number is 062-148-2374. That's 062-148-2374. I want to share a story. Hopefully we'll be able to take this idea that maybe sounds too theoretical and actualize it. We've been talking about how the- ideas should not just be theories, but actually understandable, relatable, and more importantly, act- act- actionable. They should be able to affect our action. And they have to be ideas which are understand the complexity of the human being and don't discard the human being as merely a robot. So this, I heard this story last night. I want to share it with you. It was many years ago in Brazil that at some stage the Jewish community, one of the areas in Brazil, decided decided to merge a few of their schools into one. And the idea which it comes up often in our own community here in Johannesburg as well is that there's so few resources and there's no point of offering various different uh, schools. Let's have one school. Let's have unity under one banner, and there will be peace and love, and everything will be great. And they approached the principal of one of the schools, who was a dynamic figure and a, a rabbi, and they asked him, they said, would you take on the leadership of this new school that's a conglomeration of all the schools into one? And the idea sounded so beautiful and fantastic, but he was a, a Lubavitcher. He, he was a, a, a disciple of the Lubavitcher Rebbe. And he says, I want to go ask my Rebbe first before I make such a decision. I want to get his input. And he sends a letter to the Rebbe, and the Rebbe responds very quickly. The answer is no, that the school should not merge, and you should not be the principal of all schools. He was shocked, and so were they shocked. The, the, the Lubavitcher Rebbe was a person of who was so passionate about unity and, and believed uh, so much in how we have to all come together. And here the Rebbe comes and says, don't come together. He couldn't understand it, but you know, he was a disciple, and he accepted, and he came to the, the school boards, and he says, I'm sorry, you're going to have to find somebody else. Um, I'm going to have to step down from my position because I cannot be part of this conglomeration. If you'd like to get another principal, I understand, but the only way I'm going to stay is if we keep the schools separate. And they were very disappointed, but they appreciated that he was uh, valuable, and they they laid the idea to rest for a short amount of time. In the interim, he travels to New York, um, and he shows up to Lubavitch Rebbe, and he comes in for a meeting, and he says, you know what, Rebbe, who am I to question you? And I'm sure that you have a good reason for this. But for the board and for the other people in the community who are not your disciples and don't just accept your judgment wholeheartedly without doubting it, I'm having a hard time explaining why a person like yourself who believes in unity, 
would be against bringing various schools together. And the Rebbe shared the most fascinating answer. The Rebbe turns to him and he says, you know Jewish parents. And you know that Jewish parents can often get picky. And they can get a little furibled and angry with the school. Says the Rebbe, what happens if one parent doesn't like the a teacher in the school or doesn't like the principal or doesn't like the sports curriculum or doesn't like the, the board or the dean or just doesn't like the kids in the class or doesn't like the way the other dads and moms, the cars they drive? What's going to happen? They're going to take their kid out of school. And there will be no other Jewish school, so they're going to send them to a non-Jewish school. And a a Jewish child will get a non-Jewish education. I cannot on my conscience have that knowledge that because that we the, the conglomeration of all schools, because various schools came together at one and now there's only one option for kids in that area, that the Jewish kid whose parents are disappointed with the school will take their kid out of the school and move them elsewhere. Now, when I heard that story, I, I actually, you know, stopped the video I was watching and I, I, I tried to process this. Here is an ideal, the ideal of unity, such a beautiful ideal, such an aspirational um, ideal. We can bring everybody together. But what's going to happen? What's going to happen with that one Jewish parent who's hard to please and is going to take their kid out of the school? Where are they going to send their kid? There has to be another school just as another option so that every kid can find themselves within a Jewish education. And I think the story resonates over here in, in Johannesburg as well with so many different opportunities for Jewish education and so many people talk and say, why can't we just all be united? Why do we have to have so many shuls? Why do we have to have so many schools? Why do we have to spend our resources? But there's another perspective, and that's really what this story woke me up to, that yes, in theory, we should all get along. In theory, we, we, we should all be going maybe to the same school or maybe to the same shul. But in reality... Can we have it on our conscience that because we don't have another option of a school or another option of a shul, somebody's never going to walk into another shul again? That means do we prefer having a monopoly, but yet that monopoly will cause that some people will fall off the radar? Or do we prefer to create diversity so that people can make their own choices even though it affects our monopoly? Now, this, is a, this isn't theory. This is understanding and relating to the human condition. This is an absolute awareness of the complexity of the human being. And a true leader is not only a person that talks theory, but a person that understands people. They're a people's leader. And that's why so many frustrated professors are trying, trying to figure out why they haven't um, you know, made it big in life and they're still uh, writing papers. And often it's because their theories are so beautiful, but they're so not relatable to the, to the main street, to the person who's just trying to make life to themselves and they cannot understand the theory. Or they absolutely reject the idea and the theory because they realize it doesn't work on the ground. 
And it's something that law enforcement across the world is realizing. You cannot come to a town which has a lot of crime and start imposing you know, your law and think it's going to do hocus pocus. You have to get help from the community because nobody understands a community the way the community understands community. Nobody can impose change on other people. People have to want the change. The only way that they can want the change is if they feel that the people that are trying to change understand them, have a compassion for them, and are connected to them. And the Rebbe is the leader that made people feel that he understood them and he made sure that the ideas were relatable. Just think about, I'm sure at some stage in your life you've been approached by somebody in a mall or on the streets of New York. Excuse me, sir. Or, excuse me, ma'am. Are you Jewish? Come put on tefillin. Come take Shabbos candles. Now, in theory, that that maybe doesn't make any sense. Maybe we should walk over to people and invite them to uh, lectures and sit there saying, hey, we, we have a great lecture going on next door about does God exist and what's the Jewish philosophy on the Big Bang. It's 2 o'clock in the afternoon on, on a Wednesday afternoon in Manhattan. Don't you want to go in? But you all realize that in theory that might sound great because, I mean, who wouldn't want to hear a lecture at 2 o'clock in the afternoon on a Wednesday about the Big Bang? But practically, most people have a life and most people are running around and they're not actually interested in going. So now you have two minutes to interact with the person. What are you going to do? How are you going to connect them to their heritage? How are you going to connect this woman or this man to their heritage? Do a mitzvah. And that's the genius, the brilliance of this mitzvah campaign, the idea of just go to a person and, yes, please God, one day their life will be transformed entirely, either yes or no. But for now, you have a moment. Do a mitzvah together. And that's good enough. One mitzvah is good enough. Give the person a mezuzah and let them put it on their door. Do an act of love, even if it just means giving them a sandwich. Give them some kosher food, even if that's all they're going to do. They're going to eat some kosher food for lunch instead of something non-kosher. Appreciate the, the complexity of human beings that you're not going to change them inside out in one moment and that most people don't want to hear an hour of theory. They just want to connect to their heritage in a small moment. And as somebody uh, uh, amongst many of my friends, all my friends who've stood on street corners for hours on end offering people to do a little mitzvah commandment, whether it's shaking the lulav, you just see how people connect to these little things. And there are so many panels and so many lectures and there's so many um, professors and academics trying to figure out what to do about assimilation and what to do about the, the future of Jewish people. Even now, I've read quite a few articles still reporting on the Pew Research that came out in the past few years about the massive assimilation going on in the United States. And there's going to be conferences and everybody's going to be talking about the theory about how do we get Jews together. And it's all wonderful. It's all important and maybe even vital. But reality is that we have to engage the people and we have to go to the people and find where they are. Go to a street in Manhattan and find a Jew and connect them to their heritage and go to a Jew in Joburg and go to a Jew in Perth and go to a Jew in Alaska and go to, to a Jew everywhere in the world and connect them to make Torah no longer a theory that some people might say is, doesn't relate to me. And unfortunately, that's what happened in so much in the 20th century where so many Jews felt that religion and Yiddishkeit didn't talk to them anymore. And therefore, we have crazy assimilation numbers across the world. And to make Torah, Judaism not change it, but make it applicable 
create a language for it to be able to be relatable to every human being, where a person who might not become the biggest academic and might not become the greatest sage amongst the Jewish people ever can still feel like they are as valuable as the next person and as the greatest sage just by them doing a mitzvah, just by them shaking the lulav, just by them lighting Shabbos candles, just by them putting on tefillin that, that morning. And hence the, the Rebbe's global vision of going out to the entire world and making Judaism relatable. I just, you know, I was talking to a congregate of mine who traveled to South America in the past few weeks and he went to the most remote town in South America to climb a mountain. Now who's there in the small, in the, in the remote town? An ambassador, a shliach of the Rebbe. And what's he doing there? He's, he has a 24 hour restaurant catering kosher food for all the tourists, all the Israelis who go there after the army service and various other tourists who are climbing mountains, offering services and food. And the restaurant's open 24 hours. Why? Because most people will go to the mountain at four or five in the morning and at three in the morning they want to have a quick bite. And there they go to the restaurant and pretty much almost dirt cheap. I think it's free even. They can eat whatever they want. And there is the guy stuck there for 11 years already just catering to people with thousands of people going through the Chabadas every week or every month. Why? Because we have to make Judaism palpable to everybody else. We are not changing it, heaven forbid, but we are making sure that the person can relate to it. And how do we relate to it? By doing it with a smile and by, and by giving people food, which is, by the way, a great idea. And by connecting to the people on the ground to take Judaism out of just theory. And there is so much theory to Judaism because Judaism is so rich. But it can't only be that. That's not the only part of Judaism we could sell because there's so much other parts of Judaism that can be related to somebody even who doesn't sit in a yeshiva for 10 hours a day and study. And they also could connect. And they also must connect because it's their soul. It's their who they are. And that's the only way they find happiness and contentment and meaning. And the question we have to ask ourselves Often parents will come, you know, saying, Rabbi, my kids don't want to come to shul. My kids are not interested in Judaism. And yes, us in, our, in the shuls, us rabbis and rebbitsons and leadership in the shul, we have to do the best we can to make it um, relatable to somebody in the 21st century. And we have to do the best we can. And we could always do so much more. But so too can the parents to figure out how can I teach Judaism to my kid in a way that it gives them positive experience, in a way that makes it relatable, in a way that they, it, it is wonderful and and inspirational you know now the holidays start the school holidays start and we're going to have hopefully time with our kids and with our families and yes please god you should enjoy holiday wherever you go go in peace and return in peace but somehow during that time we also don't only have to make it as a holiday to chill and relax we could also make it a time to to have conversation and engage and grow and figure out how can we Take a Judaism, which maybe means so much to us and to our parents, but doesn't mean that much to our kids, and figure out how can I transmit it in a way that relates to, de- to them. The fact that maybe some of us connected to Shul of the 1950s and the 1980s, and we found an inspirational of coming to Shul on Friday nights was the in thing. My observation, and maybe I'm wrong, and you can feel free to comment here on the uh, at Chai FM, is that uh, the Friday night... D- South African um, tradition is fizzling out slowly. It's going to be here for a while, but 
I don't expect in 20 years' time Friday night is going to be anything like it is now and definitely not the way, way it was 20, 30 years ago. And people coming for an hour service to hear a lecture and hear a beautiful choir and uh, Davin in, 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 in the shul. I don't know if that's the way people are going to connect to their Yiddishkeit. So we have to figure out more ways. We have to make shuls that are not only places where people come and dive, and then, of course, that's the fundamental of a shul. It has to be a place of people to engage in various different ways and various different connection points and portals of entry because we have to make sure that people connect to Judaism whichever way possible without compromising, without watering down the religion, but making sure that we show the beauty and diversity within the religion that there's so much to connect to. And if you don't connect to davening, you might connect to learning. If you don't connect to learning, you might connect to, to activism. You might connect to entertainment. You might connect to conversation. Whatever it is you connect to, come and be part of our community and let us all find a way to do that for our children, for ourselves, and for our families so that we can all connect because it is our heritage and it has to be who we are. You're listening to the Farbringen with Rabbi Levi Avtsan on 101.9 High FM. 101.9 High FM. My name is Rabbi Levi Avtsan, Associate Rabbi Linksfield Chill here on Soul to Soul. And we are talking today um, about making ideas and Judaism uh, relatable and making people feel that they can connect to it without watering an idea, without watering down Judaism, heaven forbid, but making sure that we're allowing people various portals of entry to connect and today's the Yartzel Labarach Rebbe and, so, and the, if there's one thing in my mind that at least he stood for and I'm sure many people he meant different things to different people for me he stood for a person who literally reinvented the way the world engage with, engages with Jews and in Judaism and the way Jews engage with their own Judaism and said how can we make a world which seems to have gone so far from its Judaism and its roots connect again and there's no question that um, by now it is the most powerful Jewish movement in the world with, not because its rabbis are more talented or more clever um, maybe some of my colleagues will disagree and take offense but because of its message, because of the way it is so passionate about being non-judgmental, connecting to people the way they are, not making them feel that they're not good enough, seeing the godly spark in every human being and focusing on that and saying, you're good enough for my attention and you're good enough for my love and what are you interested in? How can I connect your interests and your passions to God? And I'm not only just going to talk about theory, I'm going to try to connect it to your life and make it something practical and engaging for you. I want to share another story. Um, the story goes back, I think, to the 50s or 60s, where at that time there was a Jewish organization in the United States um, that was trying to get more active on Jewish campuses, on campuses rather, not Jewish campuses, to bring Judaism to Jews on campus. And they were thinking of various different ideas. How do they take kids who very often went through a religious education in their primary school and high school um, and then go to university, how do we make sure that they continue engaging in their religion? Because often what happens is they come to university, to college, and they feel like loners and they feel like they don't belong and they try to belong. And very quickly, they throw away so much of what they held dear and of their heritage for the first 18 years of their life. And they went to various different rabbis and uh, Jewish thinkers, asking them, what do we do? How do we tackle this problem? And some people were having great, fantastic ideas. Why don't you offer Jewish lectures? Why don't you offer Jewish dormitory? Why don't you... Um, 
make massive gatherings, etc. And all these ideas were nice, and th- but they were a bit too theoretical and they weren't easy to implement, especially if they were going to be done en masse across many campuses at the same time. And finally, they came to Lubavitcher Rebbe and they asked him the question. And the Rebbe starts analyzing with them. He says, let's think about this for a moment. During class, everybody's focused on their own work. That's not where the socializing happens. That's not where they run the risk of, uh, of assimilating or forgetting who they are. When is the time that they get into conversation and they, and they, they start questioning themselves? Mealtime. Because that's the time people socialize. They sit around in a cafe, they sit around in a restaurant, and they, they, they're sitting around a person, um, often from the other gender, and they, they're attracted to that person, and then they find out that the person's from a different faith and religion, but by that time, they're too deep into it, and there goes another intermarriage um, or assimilation, or just somebody who's lost their passion and forgets who they are. How about you create little lunchrooms, little eating rooms, places where people come and they, they offer kosher food, high-quality kosher food. People come there, and then they're sitting around other Jews so they can get encouraged by other Jews. They can um, make sure to keep their faith strong because they're strengthening one another, and they might marry each other, which is everybody walks out benefiting. And the person says that was the only idea from all the ideas we heard that was actually practical. And very soon after that, we rolled out small lunchrooms or luncheons in in various universities, and we had tremendous success. Again, you can be very theoretical, and you could have great ideas. What do we do about people that are going away from their faith? And what can we do about drug problems? And what can we do about crime? And what can we do about violence? And what can we do about inequality? And everybody can give great theories. But it takes a true genius, or rather a true human being, a true leader that doesn't only talk theories, but finds ideas that connect to people. They don't forget that behind every idea, there's a person that will implement. And unfortunately, that's what happens with governments all around the world, even non-corrupt governments, that they often make decisions in ivory towers without realizing how it will impact the simple person on the street. And that is not true leadership. A leader has to think about how it will implement the smallest most insignificant person of society, the lowest on the social ladder, how is it going to impact them? Because there is, in truth, nobody low. And there is nobody that deserves indignity. There's nobody that deserves to be pushed aside. It's already uh, a few, um, uh, six weeks after the day, but six weeks ago we celebrated Lagba Omer. And one of the stories of Lagba Omer was that the great sage, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, Hidden, hidden in a cave for 13 years because the Romans wanted to kill him. It's a story for a different time. And for 13 years, he studied mysticism and he, he, he uplifted himself and he grew. And the story is told that finally, after 13 years, he came out of a cave. And here's a person who was the greatest mystic. It was probably in Jewish history. I mean, he wrote the Zohar. And you'd think after 13 years locked in a cave alone, you and your son studying and praying the whole day, you are on such a lofty level that you cannot relate to a human being. And yet the story is told that as he comes out of the cave, he turns to people and he says, I want to make a difference in people's lives. Tell me something that I can help. And they tell him about a very, very insignificant, seemingly insignificant little story. And the story goes like this. Dear Rabbi, there is a field. And in this field, there are rumors that there are graves of people. And because the rumors of graves, kohanim, which are priests in the Jewish community, who are not allowed to be in a gravesite, cannot walk through this field when they're trying to cross through to the other side. 
So they have to walk around the field, which maybe takes them, I don't know, five minutes longer. Can you please investigate and research this field and figure out, can we allow a pathway in it for the Karnim to walk? Now think about this. This is a mystic who spent 13 years in a cave. The person who understood levels of godliness that by us we could, we could barely say the words, forget about fathom what he fathom. And yet what did he realize? He said, if I want to make a difference to the world, I'm going to make a difference that save people five minutes of walking. Maybe nutritionists would think that's a bad idea. Um, but here he was, a, he spent his first maybe few days or few hours out of a cave of 13 years to figure out, can I make people's life a little easier? Can I f- realize that behind that person that has to walk around the field is a person who might be late to work, who might be late to, to coming home, who might be late to synagogue, who might be late, late to any of their errands, and I need to make a difference. I need to be able to make their life a little easier. Because true leadership is not only theory. It's not only scripting laws in, 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 in the back room and, and, and impacting people through osmosis or through just a... Bl- ignoring them and just let, setting down policy, but it's by coming down to people, not as politicians come before they're trying to win the election, when they come, give big smiles, promise the world and never show up again, but constantly caring about people, listening to people's stories, having the ear to the ground. What do they care about? What's in their minds? What's in their hearts? What are they passionate about? How do I connect to their world? That's true leadership. And that's something that regardless if we're a leader of a community, a center, an organization, our family, or just leading ourselves, to be able to realize that behind theory are human beings who are the most complex organism on the planet. There is nothing more complex than a human being. There's nothing more rich than a human being. And we have to see that in ourselves and see that in others and only then try to impact and make a difference. Here on 101.9 Chai FM. You're listening to the Farbringen with Rabbi Levi Avzan on 101.9 High FM. I want to finish off by sharing one final story, which is a beautiful story. The story is told about an individual who, in the 50s, was a Holocaust survivor. And he came out very bitter from the Holocaust, and he made a decision that he will never marry, never have kids, because a world that could do that to his family and to him, it doesn't, he can't bring his kids into such a world. So there he is sitting bitter and wasting his time uh, and wasting so much opportunity. And finally, some friends turn to him and they say, why don't you go meet the Lubavitcher Rebbe in New York? Take a flight. Hear what he has to say. He's also a survivor. Um, He also lost family members in the camp. He might resonate with what you're going through. Why don't you hear him out? And he goes and he travels to New York and he walks into a meeting and he sits across the Rebbe and he starts telling him um, everything he's been through. And he's sobbing, and for Holocaust survivors, at least in the 50s, to cry was hard because they, they wanted to keep it together. But sometimes when you sit across a person who you feel genuinely understands you and is not judging you, you can let go. He was crying, and the Rebbe was crying with him. And finally, the Rebbe turns to him and says, tell me, <coughs> did the Nazis take everything away from you? Everything? He says, yes, they took Everything? Everything? Yes, Rebbe, everything. And the Rebbe says, but there's one thing that they didn't take. He says, what's that? The love that you have for your family. He says, that's right, Rebbe. They couldn't take away. I still love my family. Turns the Rebbe to him. The story is so beautiful. He turns to him and he says, 
who's going to carry that love forward? That intense love that you have for the family, that intense love that they can never take away from you, how's that going to enter this world? How are you going to make sure that that love combats all the darkness in this world? So here's my suggestion to you. Go back, find a nice girl, get married. Have children. And give those children all the love in your heart that you have for your family and that they have for you. You pass it over to them. And make them ambassadors of love to this world. And then, not only your children, whenever you see a child, tell them that you care about them. Make them feel that you love them. Make them feel that you're so happy to see a child and you don't see them as a nuisance, but you see them as the greatest gift to the world. And when you pass over the love to them, then you are keeping your parents and grandparents and siblings alive through them and the love will never die. And he looks at the Rebbe and he says, thank you. And 50 years later, he shared the story with somebody and he says, I have children, grandchildren who are passing over the love and every child I see makes sure that I know I, the person who saw one and a half million kids being killed in the Holocaust, I know how valuable they are and how excited I am that they're part of our world. The Rebbe could have given them deep philosophical conversations about the goodness of God and why bad things happen to good people and God knows what else. But sometimes it's not about theory. Sometimes it's caring and relating to the person as who they are. So next time someone asks you for advice... Next time you can make a difference. Next time you have a great genius idea that you think will solve world hunger and find a cure for cancer and God knows what else. Before you think of that, before you start sharing the idea, ask yourself the idea. Ask yourself if this idea is good for people as well, not only for your own self-righteousness. Wishing you a great week. Please, God, we will uh, be back in a few weeks' time after the holidays. Enjoy your holidays. Enjoy the day. And I encourage you on this day, the... 23rd Yartzel Lubavitcher Rebbe to do something an act of goodness and kindness a mitzvah, a good deed in his memory and to continue his love in our hearts, in the hearts of everybody because that's what our, love ne- our world needs just a little more love here on 101.9 Chai